BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Section 4 of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C.J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4. Chapters 13 through 16. Chapter 13. The Traitress. After luncheon we began to play at round games, in which I took a lively part. While indulging in cat and mouse, I happened to cannon rather awkwardly against Kornikoff's governess, who was playing with us, and stepping on her dress tore a large hole in it. Seeing that the girls, particularly Sonetchka, were anything but displeased at the spectacle of the governess angrily departing to the maid-servant's room to have her dress mended, I resolved to procure them the satisfaction of a second time. Accordingly, in pursuance of this amiable resolution, I waited until my victim returned, and then began to gallop madly round her, until a favourable moment occurred for once more planting my heel upon her dress, and reopening the rent. Sonetchka and the young princesses had much ado to restrain their laughter, which excited my conceit the more, but St. Jerome, who had probably divined my tricks, came up to me with the frown which I could never abide in him, and said that since I seemed disposed to mischief, he would have to send me away if I did not moderate my behaviour. However, I was in the desperate position of a person who, having staked more than he has in his pocket, and feeling that he can never make up his account, continues to plunge on unlucky cards, not because he hopes to regain his losses, but because it will not do for him to stop and consider. So I merely laughed in an impudent fashion, and flung away from my monitor. After cat and mouse another game followed, in which the gentlemen sit on one row of chairs and the ladies on another and choose each other for partners. The youngest princess always chose the younger Iwin, Katenka either Woloda or Ilinka, and Sonetchka Siriosha. Nor to my extreme astonishment did Sonetchka seem at all embarrassed when her cavalier went and sat down beside her. On the contrary, she only laughed her sweet musical laugh, and made a sign with her head that he had chosen right. Since nobody chose me, I always had the mortification of finding myself left over, and of hearing them say, Who has been left out? Oh, Nikolinka! Well, do take him, somebody. Consequently, whenever it came to my turn to guess who had chosen me, I had to go either to my sister or to one of the ugly elder princesses. Sonetchka seemed so absorbed in Seriosha that in her eyes I clearly existed no longer. I do not quite know why I called her the traitress in my thoughts, since she had never promised to choose me instead of Seriosha. 
but for all that I felt convinced that she was treating me in a very abominable fashion. After the game was finished, I actually saw the traitress, from whom I nevertheless could not withdraw my eyes, go with Seriosha and Katenka into a corner, and engage in secret confabulation. Stealing softly round the piano, which masked the conclave, I beheld the following. Katenka was holding up a pocket-handkerchief by two of its corners, so as to form a screen for the heads of her two companions. "'No, you have lost, you must pay the forfeit,' cried Seriosha at that moment, and Sonetchka, who was standing in front of him, blushed like a criminal as she replied, "'No, I have not lost. Have I, Mademoiselle Catherine?' "'Well, I must speak the truth,' answered Katenka, "'and say that you have lost, my dear.' Scarcely had she spoken the words when Seriosha embraced Sonetchka and kissed her right on her rosy lips, and Sonetchka smiled as though it were nothing but merely something very pleasant. Horrors! The Artful Traitress! CHAPTER Fourteen: THE RETRIBUTION Instantly I began to feel a strong contempt for the female sex in general and Sonetchka in particular. I began to think that it was nothing at all amusing in these games, that they were only fit for girls, and felt as though I should like to make a great noise, or to do something of such extraordinary boldness that every one would be forced to admire it. The opportunity soon arrived. St. Jerome said something to Mimi, and then left the room. I could hear his footsteps ascending the staircase, and then passing across the schoolroom, and the idea occurred to me that Mimi must have told him her story about my being found on the landing, and thereupon he had gone to look at the register. In those days it must be remembered, I believed that St. Jerome's whole aim in life was to annoy me. Somewhere I have read that, not infrequently, children of from twelve to fourteen years of age—that is to say, children just passing from childhood to adolescence—are addicted to incendiarism, or even to murder. As I look back on my childhood, and particularly upon the mood in which I was on that particular for myself most unlucky day, I can quite understand the possibility of such terrible crimes being committed by children without any real aim in view, without any wish to do wrong, but merely out of curiosity or under the influence of an unconscious necessity for action. There are moments when the human being sees the future in such lurid colours that he shrinks from fixing his mental eye upon it, puts a check upon all his intellectual activity, and tries to feel convinced that the future will never be, and that the past has never been. At such moments—moments when thought does not shrink from manifestations of will, and the carnal instincts alone constitute the springs of life—I can understand that want of experience which is a particularly predisposing factor in this connection, might very possibly lead a child, aye, without fear or hesitation, but rather with a smile of curiosity on its face, to set fire to the house in which its parents and brothers and sisters, beings whom it tenderly loves, are lying asleep. It would be under the same influence of momentary absence of thought, almost absence of mind, that a peasant boy of seventeen might catch sight of the edge of a newly sharpened axe, reposing near the bench on which his aged father was lying asleep, face downwards, and suddenly raise the implement in order to observe with unconscious curiosity how the blood would come spurting out upon the floor if he made a wound in the sleeper's neck. It is under the same influence, the same absence of thought, the same instinctive curiosity, 
that a man finds delight in standing on the brink of an abyss and thinking to himself, how if I were to throw myself down, or in holding to his brow a loaded pistol and wondering, what if I were to pull the trigger, or in feeling, when he catches sight of some universally respected personage, that he would like to go up to him, pull his nose hard, and say, how do you do, old boy? Under the spell, then, of this instinctive agitation and lack of reflection, I was moved to put out my tongue, and to say that I would not move, when St. Jerome came down and told me that I had behaved so badly that day, as well as done my lessons so ill, that I had no right to be where I was and must go upstairs directly. At first, from astonishment and anger, he could not utter a word. C'est bien, he exclaimed eventually as he darted towards me. Several times have I promised to punish you, and you have been saved from it by your grandmamma. But now I see that nothing but the cane will teach you obedience, and you shall therefore taste it." This was said loud enough for every one to hear. The blood rushed to my heart with such vehemence that I could feel that organ beating violently, could feel the color rising to my cheeks and my lips trembling. Probably I looked horrible at that moment, for, avoiding my eye, St. Jerome stepped forward and caught me by the hand. Hardly feeling his touch, I pulled away my hand in blind fury, and with all my childish might struck him. "'What are you doing?' said Woloda, who had seen my behaviour, and now approached me in alarm and astonishment. "'Let me alone!' I exclaimed, the tears flowing fast. Not a single one of you loves me or understands how miserable I am. You are all of you odious and disgusting," I added bluntly, turning to the company at large. At this moment St. Jerome, his face pale but determined, approached me again, and with a movement too quick to admit of any defence, seized my hands as with a pair of tongs and dragged me away. My head swam with excitement, and I can only remember that so long as I had strength to do it I fought with head and legs, that my nose several times collided with a pair of knees, that my teeth tore someone's coat, that all around me I could hear the shuffling of feet, and that I could smell dust and the scent of violets with which St. Jerome used to perfume himself. Five minutes later the door of the storeroom closed behind me. Basil said a triumphant but detestable voice. Bring me the cane. CHAPTER Fifteen, DREAMS Could I at that moment have supposed that I should ever live to survive the misfortunes of that day, or that there would ever come a time when I should be able to look back upon those misfortunes composedly? As I sat there thinking over what I had done, I could not imagine what the matter had been with me. I only felt with despair that I was forever lost. At first the most profound stillness reigned around me. At least so it appeared to me as compared with the violent internal emotion which I had been experiencing. But by and by I began to distinguish various sounds. Basil brought something downstairs which he laid upon a chest outside. It sounded like a broomstick. Below me I could hear St. Jerome's grumbling voice, probably he was speaking of me, and then children's voices and laughter and footsteps, until in a few moments everything seemed to have regained its normal course in the house, as though nobody knew or cared to know that here I was sitting alone in the dark storeroom. I did not cry, but something lay heavy, like a stone, upon my heart. Ideas and pictures passed with extraordinary rapidity before my troubled imagination. 
yet through their fantastic sequence broke continually the remembrance of the misfortune which had befallen me as I once again plunged into an interminable labyrinth of conjectures as to the punishment, the fate, and the despair that were awaiting me. The thought occurred to me that there must be some reason for the general dislike, even contempt, which I fancied to be felt for me by others. I was firmly convinced that every one, from Grandmamma down to the coachman Philip, despised me and found pleasure in my sufferings. Next an idea struck me that perhaps I was not the son of my father and mother at all, nor Woloda's brother, but only some unfortunate orphan who had been adopted by them out of compassion. And this absurd notion not only afforded me a certain melancholy consolation, but seemed to me quite probable. I found it comforting to think that I was unhappy, not through my own fault, but because I was fated to be so from my birth and conceived that my destiny was very much like poor Karl Ivanitch's. Why conceal the secret any longer now that I have discovered it, I reflected. Tomorrow I will go to Papa and say to him, It is in vain for you to try and conceal from me the mystery of my birth. I know it already. And he will answer me, What else could I do, my good fellow? Sooner or later you would have had to know that you are not my son, but were adopted as such. Nevertheless, so long as you remain worthy of my love, I will never cast you out. Then I shall say, Papa, though I have no right to call you by that name, and am now doing so for the last time, I have always loved you, and shall always retain that love. At the same time, while I can never forget that you have been my benefactor, I cannot remain longer in your house. Nobody here loves me, and St. Jerome has wrought my ruin. Either he or I must go forth, since I cannot answer for myself. I hate the man so that I could do anything. I could even kill him. Papa will begin to entreat me, but I shall make a gesture and say, No, no, my friend and benefactor, we cannot live together. Let me go. And for the last time I shall embrace him and say in French, O oh, mon père, O oh, mon benefacteur, donne-moi pour la dernière fois ta bénédiction, et que la volonté de Dieu soit faite. I sobbed bitterly at these thoughts as I sat on a trunk in that dark storeroom. Then, suddenly recollecting the shameful punishment which was awaiting me, I would find myself back again in actuality, and the dreams had fled. Soon again I began to fancy myself far away from the house and alone in the world. I enter a Hussar regiment and go to war. Surrounded by the foe on every side, I wave my sword, and kill one of them, and wound another, then a third, then a fourth. At last, exhausted with loss of blood and fatigue, I fall to the ground and cry, Victory! The general comes to look for me, asking, Where is our Saviour? Whereupon I am pointed out to him. He embraces me, and in his turn exclaimed with tears of joy, Victory! I recover and with my arm in a black sling go to walk on the boulevards. I am a general now. I meet the emperor, who asks, Who is this young man who has been wounded? He is told that it is the famous hero Nicholas. Whereupon he approaches me and says, My thanks to you. Whatsoever you may ask for, I will grant it. To this I bow respectfully, and leaning on my sword reply, I am happy, most august emperor, that I have been able to shed my blood for my country. I would gladly have died for it. Yet, since you are so generous as to grant any wish of mine, 
I venture to ask of you permission to annihilate my enemy, the foreigner St. Jerome. And then I step fiercely before St. Jerome and say, You were the cause of all my fortunes. Down now on your knees. Unfortunately this recalled to my mind the fact that at any moment the real St. Jerome might be entering with the cane, so that once more I saw myself not a general and the saviour of my country, but an unhappy, pitiful creature. Then the idea of God occurred to me, and I asked him boldly why he had punished me thus, seeing that I had never forgotten to say my prayers, either morning or evening. Indeed, I can positively declare that it was during that hour in the storeroom that I took the first step towards the religious doubt which afterwards assailed me during my youth. Not that mere misfortune could arouse me to infidelity and murmuring, but that at moments of utter contrition and solitude the idea of the injustice of providence took root in me as readily as bad seed takes root in land well soaked with rain. Also. I imagined that I was going to die there and then, and drew vivid pictures of St. Jerome's astonishment when he entered the storeroom and found a corpse there instead of myself. Likewise, recollecting what Natalia Savishna had told me of the forty days during which the souls of the departed must hover around their earthly home, I imagined myself flying through the rooms of Grandmamma's house, and seeing Lubotshka's bitter tears and hearing Grandmamma's lamentations, and listening to Papa and St. Jerome talking together. "'He was a fine boy,' Papa would say, with tears in his eyes. "'Yes,' St. Jerome would reply, "'but a sad scapegrace and good for nothing.' "'But you should respect the dead,' would expostulate Papa. "'You were the cause of his death. You frightened him until he could no longer bear the thought of humiliation which you were about to inflict upon him.' away from me, criminal!" Upon that St. Jerome would fall upon his knees and implore forgiveness, and when the forty days were ended my soul would fly to heaven and see there something wonderfully beautiful, white and transparent, and know that it was Mamma. And that something would embrace me and caress me, yet all at once I should feel troubled and not know her. "'If it be you,' I should say to her, "'show yourself more distinctly, so that I may embrace you in return.' and her voice would answer me, "'Do you not feel happy thus?' And I should reply, "'Yes, I do. But you cannot really caress me, and I cannot really kiss your hand like this.' "'But it is not necessary,' she would say. "'There can be happiness here without that.' And I should feel that it was so, and we should ascend together ever higher and higher, until suddenly I feel as though I am being thrown down again, and find myself sitting on the trunk in the dark storeroom my cheeks wet with tears and my thoughts in a mist, yet still repeating the words, let us ascend together higher and higher. Indeed, it was a long, long while before I could remember where I was, for at that moment my mind's eye saw only a dark, dreadful, illimitable void. I tried to renew the happy, consoling dream which had been thus interrupted by the return to reality, but to my surprise I found that as soon as ever I attempted to re-enter former dreams, their continuation became impossible, while, which astonished me even more, they no longer gave me pleasure. CHAPTER Sixteen: KEEP ON GRINDING AND YOU'LL HAVE FLOUR I passed the night in the storeroom, and nothing further happened except that on the following morning, a Sunday, I was removed to a small chamber adjoining the schoolroom, and once more shut up. 
I began to hope that my punishment was going to be limited to confinement, and found my thoughts growing calmer under the influence of a sound, soft sleep, the clear sunlight playing upon the frost-crystals of the window-panes, and the familiar noises in the street. Nevertheless, solitude gradually became intolerable. I wanted to move about, and to communicate to some one all that was lying upon my heart, but not a living creature was near me. The position was the more unpleasant, because willy-nilly I could hear St. Jerome walking about in his room, and softly whistling some hackneyed tune. Somehow I felt convinced that he was whistling not because he wanted to, but because he knew it annoyed me. At two o'clock he and Woloda departed downstairs, and Nicola brought me up some luncheon. When I told him what I had done, and what was awaiting me, he said, "'Pshaw, sir, don't be alarmed. Keep on grinding, and you'll have flour.' Although this expression, which also in later days has more than once helped me to preserve my firmness of mind, brought me a little comfort, the fact that I received, not bread and water only, but a whole luncheon, and even dessert, gave me much to think about. If they had sent me no dessert, it would have meant that my punishment was to be limited to confinement. Whereas it was now evident that I was looked upon as not yet punished, that I was only being kept away from the others as an evildoer until the due time of punishment. While I was still debating the question, the key of my prison turned, and St. Jerome entered with a severe official air. "'Come down and see your grandmamma,' he said, without looking at me. I should have liked first to have brushed my jacket, since it was covered with dust, but St. Jerome said that was quite unnecessary since I was in such a deplorable moral condition that my exterior was not worth considering. As he led me through the salon, Katenka, Lubachka, and Woloda looked at me with much the same expression as we were wont to look at the convicts who on certain days filed past my grandmother's house. Likewise, when I approached Grandmamma's armchair to kiss her hand, she withdrew it and thrust it under her mantilla. "'Well, my dear,' she began after a long pause, during which she regarded me from head to foot, with the kind of expression which makes one uncertain where to look or what to do, "'I must say that you seem to value my love very highly, and afford me great consolation.' Then she went on, with an emphasis on each word. "'Monsieur St. Jerome, who at my request undertook your education, says that he can no longer remain in the house, and why? Simply because of you." Another pause ensued. Presently she continued in a tone which clearly showed that her speech had been prepared beforehand. "'I had hoped that you would be grateful for all his care, and for all the trouble that he has taken with you, that you would have appreciated his services. But you, you baby, you silly boy, you actually dare to raise your hand against him? Very well. Very good. I am beginning to think that you cannot understand kind treatment, but require to be treated in a very different and humiliating fashion. Go now directly and beg his pardon," she added, in a stern and peremptory tone, as she pointed to St. Jerome. Do you hear me? I followed the direction of her finger with my eye, but on that member alighting upon St. Jerome's coat I turned my head away, and felt once more my heart beating violently as I remained where I was. What? Did you not hear me when I told you what to do? I was trembling all over, but I would not stir. Coco, went on my grandmother, probably divining my inward sufferings. Coco, she repeated in a voice tender rather than harsh, is this you? Grandmamma, 
I cannot beg his pardon for—and I stopped suddenly, for I felt the next word refused to come for the tears that were choking me. But I ordered you, I begged of you to do so. What is the matter with you? I—I—I I, will not—I cannot, I gasped, and the tears, long pent up and accumulated in my breast, burst forth like a stream which breaks its dikes and goes flowing madly over the country. C'est ainsi que vous obéissez à votre seconde mère, c'est ainsi que vous reconnaissez ses bons, remarked St. Jerome quietly. À genoux. Good God! If she had seen this, exclaimed Grandmamma, turning from me and wiping away her tears, if she had seen this! It may be all for the best, yet she could never have survived such grief. Never! and Grandmamma wept more and more. I too wept, but it never occurred to me to ask for pardon. "'Tranquillisez-vous, à nom du ciel, Madame la Comtesse,' said St. Jerome. But Grandmamma heard him not. She covered her face with her hands, and her sobs soon passed to hiccups and hysteria. Mimi and Gasha came running in with frightened faces. Salts and spirits were applied, and the whole house was soon in a ferment. "'You may feel pleased at your work,' said St. Jerome to me, as he led me from the room. "'Good God! What have I done?' I thought to myself. "'What a terribly bad boy I am!' As soon as St. Jerome, bidding me to go into his room, had returned to Grandmamma, I, all unconscious of what I was doing, ran down the grand staircase leading to the front door. Whether I intended to drown myself, or whether merely to run away from home, I do not remember. I only know that I went blindly on, my face covered with my hands, that I might see nothing. "'Where are you going to?' asked a well-known voice. "'I want you, my boy.' I would have passed on, but Papa caught hold of me, and said sternly, "'Come here, you impudent rascal! How could you dare to do such a thing as to touch the portfolio in my study?' he went on as he dragged me into his room. "'Oh, you are silent, eh?' and he pulled my ear. "'Yes, I was naughty,' I said. I don't know myself what came over me then. So you don't know what came over you? You don't know? You don't know? He repeated as he pulled my ear harder and harder. Will you go and put your nose where you ought not to again? Will you? Will you? Although my ear was in great pain, I did not cry, but, on the contrary, felt a sort of morally pleasing sensation. No sooner did he let go of my ear than I seized his hand and covered it with tears and kisses. "'Please whip me!' I cried, sobbing. "'Please hurt me the more and more, for I am a wretched, bad, miserable boy.' "'Why, what on earth is the matter with you?' he said, giving me a slight push from him. "'No, I will not go away,' I continued, seizing his coat. "'Every one else hates me, I know that, but do you listen to me and protect me, or else send me away altogether. I cannot live with him. He tries to humiliate me. He tells me to kneel before him, and wants to strike me. I can't stand it. I'm not a baby. I can't stand it. I shall die. I shall kill myself. He told Grandmamma that I was naughty, and now she is ill. She will die through me. It is all his fault. Please let me—why should he torment me?" The tears choked my further speech. I sat down on the sofa, and with my head buried on Papa's knees, sobbed until I thought I should die of grief. "'Come, come. Why are you such a water-pump?' said Papa compassionately, as he stooped over me. "'He is such a bully. 
He is murdering me. I shall die. Nobody loves me at all," I gasped almost inaudibly, and went into convulsions. Papa lifted me up, and carried me to my bedroom, where I fell asleep. When I awoke it was late. Only a solitary candle burned in the room, while beside the bed there were seated Mimi, Lubotshka, and our doctor. In their faces I could discern anxiety for my health, so although I felt so well after my twelve hours' sleep that I could have got up directly, I thought it best to let them continue thinking that I was unwell. End of section 4 Recording by Bill Borst Section 5 of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy Translated by C. J. Hogarth This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 5 Chapters 17 through 20 Chapter 17 Hatred Yes, it was the real feeling of hatred that was mine now, not the hatred of which one reads in novels and in the existence of which I do not believe, the hatred which finds satisfaction in doing harm to a fellow-creature, but the hatred which consists of an unconquerable aversion to a person who may be wholly deserving of your esteem yet whose very hair, neck, walk, voice, limbs, movements, and everything else are disgusting to you, while all the while an incomprehensible force attracts you towards him, and compels you to follow his slightest acts with anxious attention. This was the feeling which I cherished for St. Jerome, who had lived with us now for a year and a half. Judging coolly of the man at this time of day, I find that he was a true Frenchman but a Frenchman in the better acceptation of the term. He was fairly well educated, and fulfilled his duties to us conscientiously, but he had the peculiar features of fickle egotism, boastfulness, impertinence, and ignorant self-assurance, which are common to all his countrymen, as well as entirely opposed to the Russian character. All this set me against him. Grandmamma had signified to him her dislike for corporal punishment and therefore he dared not beat us, but he frequently threatened us, particularly myself, with the cane, and would utter the word fouette as though it were fouette in an expressive and detestable way which always gave me the idea that to whip me would afford him the greatest possible satisfaction. I was not in the least afraid of the bodily pain, for I had never experienced it. It was the mere idea that he could beat me that threw me into such paroxysms of wrath and despair. True, Karl Ivanitch sometimes, in moments of exasperation, had recourse to a ruler or to his braces, but that I can look back upon without anger. Even if he had struck me at the time of which I am now speaking, namely when I was fourteen years old, I should have submitted quietly to the correction, for I loved him, and had known him all my life and looked upon him as a member of our family. But St. Jerome was a conceited, opinionated fellow for whom I felt merely the unwilling respect which I entertained for all persons older than myself. Karl Ivanitch was a comical old uncle whom I loved with my whole heart, but who, according to my childish conception of social distinctions, ranked below us, whereas St. Jerome was a well-educated, handsome young dandy, who was for showing himself the equal of any one. Karl Ivanitch had always scolded and punished us coolly, as though he thought it a necessary but extremely disagreeable duty. 
St. Jerome, on the contrary, always liked to emphasize his part as judge when correcting us, and clearly did it as much for his own satisfaction as for our good. He loved authority. Nevertheless, I always found his grandiloquent French phrases, which he pronounced with a strong emphasis on all the final syllables, inexpressibly disgusting, whereas Karl, when angry, had never said anything beyond, "'What a foolish puppet comedy it is!' or, "'You boys are as irritating as Spanish fly,' which he always called Spaniard fly. St. Jerome, however, had names for us like Mauvais Sujet, Vilain, Ganemont, and so forth, epithets which greatly offended my self-respect. When Karl Ivanitch ordered us to kneel in the corner with our faces to the wall, the punishment consisted merely in the bodily discomfort of the position, whereas St. Jerome, in such cases, always assumed a haughty air, made a grandiose gesture with his hand, and exclaiming in a pseudo-tragic tone, à genoux mauvais sujet, ordered us to kneel with our faces towards him, and to crave his pardon. His punishment consisted in humiliation. However, on the present occasion the punishment never came, nor was the matter ever referred to again. Yet I could not forget all that I had gone through—the shame, the fear, and the hatred of those two days. From that time forth St. Jerome appeared to give me up in despair, and took no further trouble with me. Yet I could not bring myself to treat him with indifference. Every time that our eyes met I felt that my look expressed only too plainly my dislike and though I tried hard to assume a careless air, he seemed to divine my hypocrisy, until I was forced to blush and turn away. In short, it was a terrible trial to me to have anything to do with him. CHAPTER Eighteen: THE MAID-SERVANT'S ROOM I began to feel more and more lonely until my chief solace lay in solitary reflection and observation. Of the favorite subject of my reflections I shall speak in the next chapter. The scene where I indulged in them was, for preference, the maid-servant's room, where a plot suitable for a novel was in progress—a plot which touched and engrossed me to the highest degree. The heroine of the romance was, of course, Masha. She was in love with Basil, who had known her before she had become a servant in our house, and who had promised to marry her some day. Unfortunately, fate, which had separated them five years ago, and afterwards reunited them in Grandmamma's abode, next proceeded to interpose an obstacle between them in the shape of Masha's uncle, our man Nicola, who would not hear of his niece marrying that uneducated and unbearable fellow, as he called Basil. One effect of the obstacle had been to make the otherwise slightly cool and indifferent Basil fall as passionately in love with Masha as it is possible for a man to be who is only a servant and a tailor, wears a red shirt, and has his hair pomaded. Although his methods of expressing his affection were odd—for instance, whenever he met Masha he always endeavoured to inflict upon her some bodily pain, either by pinching her, giving her a slap with his open hand, or squeezing her so hard that she could scarcely breathe—that affection was sincere enough, and he proved it by the fact that from the moment when Nicola refused him his niece's hand, his grief led him to drinking, and to frequenting taverns, until he proved so unruly that more than once he had to be sent to undergo a humiliating chastisement at the police station. 
Nevertheless, these faults of his and their consequences only served to elevate him in Masha's eyes, and to increase her love for him. Whenever he was in the hands of the police, she would sit crying the whole day and complain to Gasha of her hard fate. Gasha played an active part in the affairs of these unfortunate lovers. Then, regardless of her uncle's anger and blows, she would stealthily make her way to the police station, there to visit and console her swain. Excuse me, reader, for introducing you to such company. Nevertheless, if the cords of love and compassion have not wholly snapped your soul, you will find, even in that maidservant's room, something which may cause them to vibrate again. So, whether you please to follow me or not, I will return to the alcove on the staircase whence I was able to observe all that passed in that room. From my post I could see the stove-couch, with upon it an iron, an old cap-stand with its peg bent crooked, a wash-tub, and a basin. There, too, was the window with, in fine disorder before it, a piece of black wax, some fragments of silk, a half-eaten cucumber, a box of sweets, and so on. There, too, was the large table at which she used to sit in the pink cotton dress which I admired so much, and the blue handkerchief which always caught my attention so. She would be sewing, though interrupting her work at intervals to scratch her head a little, to bite the end of her thread, or to snuff the candle, and I would think to myself, why was she not born a lady, she with her blue eyes, beautiful fair hair, and magnificent bust? How splendid she would look if she were sitting in a drawing-room, and dressed in a cap with pink ribbons and a silk gown! Not one like Mimi's, but one like the gown which I saw the other day at the Trifsky Boulevard. Yes, she would work at the embroidery frame, and I would sit and look at her in the mirror, and be ready to do whatsoever she wanted—to help her on with her mantle, or to hand her food. As for Basil's drunken face and horrid figure in the scanty coat, with the red shirt showing beneath it, well, in his every gesture, in his every movement of his back, I seemed always to see signs of the humiliating chastisements which he had undergone. "'Ah! Basil! Again?' cried Masha on one occasion as she stuck her needle into the pincushion, but without looking up at the person who was entering. "'What is the good of a man like him?' was Basil's first remark. Yes, if only he would say something decisive, but I am powerless in the matter. I am at odds and ends, and through his fault, too. Will you have some tea? put in Madesha, another servant. No, thank you. But why does he hate me so, that old thief of an uncle of yours? Why? Is it because of the clothes I wear, or of my height, or of my walk, or what? Well, damn and confound him, finished Basil, snapping his fingers. We must be patient," said Masha, threading her needle. "'You are so—it is my nerves that won't stand it, that's all.' At this moment the door of Grandmamma's room banged, and Gasha's angry voice could be heard as she came up the stairs. "'There,' she muttered with a gesture of her hands. "'Try to please people when even they themselves do not know what they want, and it is a cursed life—sheer hard labor, and nothing else. If only a certain thing would happen.' though God forgive me for thinking it." "'Good evening, Agatha Mikhailovna,' said Basil, rising to greet her. "'You here?' she answered brusquely as she stared at him. "'That is not very much to your credit. What do you come here for? Is the maid's room a proper place for men?' "'I wanted to see how you were,' said Basil, soothingly. "'I shall soon be breathing my last. That's how I am,' cried Gasha, still greatly incensed. 
Basil laughed. Oh, there's nothing to laugh at when I say that I shall soon be dead. But that's how it will be, all the same. Just look at the drunkard. Marry her, would he? The fool. Come get out of here." And with a stamp of her foot on the floor Gasha retreated to her own room, and banged the door behind her until the window rattled again. For a while she could be heard scolding at everything, flinging dresses and other things about, and pulling the ears of her favorite cat. Then the door opened again, and Puss, mewing pitifully, was flung forth by the tail. "'I had better come another time for tea,' said Basil, in a whisper, "'at some better time for our meeting.' "'No, no,' put in Medesha. "'I'll go and fetch the urn at once.' "'I mean to put an end to things soon,' went on Basil, seating himself beside Masha as soon as ever Madesha had left the room. "'I had much better go straight to the Countess, and say so-and-so, or I will throw up my situation and go off into the world. Oh, dear, oh, dear!' "'And am I to remain here?' "'Ah, there's the difficulty. That's what I feel so badly about. You have been my sweetheart so long, you see. Ah, dear me!' "'Why don't you bring me your shirts to wash, Basil?' asked Masha, after a pause during which she had been inspecting his wristbands. At this moment Grandmamma's bell rang, and Gasha issued from her room again. "'What do you want with her, you impudent fellow?' she cried, as she pushed Basil, who had risen at her entrance, before her towards the door. First you lead a girl on, and then you want to lead her further still. I suppose it amuses you to see her tears. There's the door now. Off you go. We want your room, not your company. And what good can you see in him?" she went on, turning to Masha. "'Has not your uncle been walking into you to-day already? No. She must stick to her promise, forsooth. I will have no one but Basil. Fool that you are!' "'Yes, I will have no one but him. I'll never love any one else. I could kill myself for him.' Poor Masha burst out, the tears suddenly gushing forth. For a while I stood watching her as she wiped away those tears. Then I fell to contemplating Basil attentively, in the hope of finding out what there was in him that she found so attractive. Yet, though I sympathized with her sincerely in her grief, I could not for the life of me understand how such a charming creature as I considered her to be could love a man like him. When I become a man, I thought to myself as I returned to my room, Petrovsky shall be mine and Basil and Masha my servants. Some day, when I am sitting in my study and smoking a pipe, Masha will chance to pass the door on her way to the kitchen with an iron, and I shall say, Masha, come here, and she will enter, and there will be no one else in the room. Then suddenly Basil, too, will enter, and on seeing her will cry, My sweetheart is lost to me, and Masha will begin to weep. Then I shall say, Basil, I know that you love her, and that she loves you. Here are a thousand roubles for you. Marry her, and may God grant you both happiness. Then I shall leave them together." Among the countless thoughts and fancies which pass, without logic or sequence, through the mind and the imagination, there are always some which leave behind them a mark so profound that, without remembering their exact subject, we can at least recall that something good has passed through our brain, and try to retain and reproduce its effect. Such was the mark left upon my consciousness by the idea of sacrificing my feelings to Masha's happiness, seeing that she believed that she could attain it only through a union with Basil. CHAPTER Nineteen, BOYHOOD 
Perhaps people will scarcely believe me when I tell them what were the dearest, most constant objects of my reflections during my boyhood. So little did those objects consort with my age and position. Yet, in my opinion, contrast between a man's actual position and his moral activity constitutes the most reliable sign of his genuineness. During the period when I was leading a solitary and self-centered moral life, I was much taken up with abstract thoughts on man's destiny, on a future life, and on the immortality of the soul, and with all the ardor of inexperience strove to make my youthful intellect solve those questions, the questions which constitute the highest level of thought to which the human intellect can tend, but a final decision of which the human intellect can never succeed in attaining. I believe the intellect to take the same course of development in the individual as in the mass, as also that the thoughts which serve as a basis for philosophical theories are an inseparable part of that intellect, and that every man must be more or less conscious of those thoughts before he can know anything of the existence of philosophical theories. To my own mind, those thoughts presented themselves with such clarity and force that I tried to apply them to life in the fond belief that I was the first to have discovered such splendid and invaluable truths. Sometimes I would suppose that happiness depends not upon external causes themselves, but only upon our relation to them, and that provided a man can accustom himself to bearing suffering, he need never be unhappy. To prove the latter hypothesis I would, despite the horrible pain, hold out a Tatischeff's dictionary at arm's length for five minutes at a time, or else go into the storeroom and scourge my back with cords until the tears involuntarily came to my eyes. Another time, suddenly bethinking me that death might find me at any hour or any minute, I came to the conclusion that man could only be happy by using the present to the full, and taking no thought for the future. Indeed, I wondered how people had never found that out before. Acting under the influence of the new idea, I laid my lesson-books aside for two or three days, and reposing on my bed gave myself up to novel-reading, and the eating of gingerbread and honey, which I had bought with my last remaining coins. Again, standing one day before the blackboard, and smearing figures on it with honey, I was struck with the thought, why is symmetry so agreeable to the eye? What is symmetry? Of course it is an innate sense, I continued. Yet what is its basis? Perhaps everything in life is symmetry? But no. On the contrary, this is life. And I drew an oblong figure on the board. And after life the soul passes to eternity. Here I drew a line from one end of the oblong figure to the edge of the board. Why should there not be a corresponding line on the other side? If there can be an eternity on one side, there must surely be a corresponding one on the other. That means that we have existed in a previous life, but have lost the recollection of it. This conclusion, which seemed to me at the time both clear and novel, but the arguments for which it would be difficult for me at this distance of time to piece together, pleased me extremely, so I took a piece of paper and tried to write it down, but at the first attempt such a rush of other thoughts came whirling through my brain that I was obliged to jump up and pace the room. At the window, my attention was arrested by a driver harnessing a horse to a water-cart, and at once my mind concentrated itself upon the decision of the question, Into what animal or human being will the spirit of that horse pass at death? Just at that moment Woloda passed through the room, and smiled to see me absorbed in speculative thoughts. 
His smile at once made me feel that all that I had been thinking about was utter nonsense. I have related all this as I recollect it, in order to show the reader the nature of my cogitations. No philosophical theory attracted me so much as skepticism, which at one period brought me to a state of mind verging upon insanity. I took the fancy into my head that no one nor anything really existed in the world except myself, that objects were not objects at all, but that images of them became manifest only so soon as I turned my attention upon them, and vanished again directly that I ceased to think about them. In short, this idea of mine, that real objects do not exist but only one's conception of them, brought me to Schelling's well-known theory. There were moments when the influence of this idea led me to such vagaries as, for instance, turning sharply round, in the hope that by the suddenness of the movement I should come in contact with the void which I believed to be existing where I myself purported to be. What a pitiful spring of moral activity is the human intellect! My faulty reason could not define the impenetrable. Consequently it shattered one fruitless conviction after another, convictions which, happily, for my after-life, I never lacked the courage to abandon as soon as they proved inadequate. From all this weary mental struggle I derived only a certain pliancy of mind, a weakening of the will, a habit of perpetual moral analysis, and a diminution both of freshness of sentiment and of clearness of thought. Usually abstract thinking develops man's capacity for apprehending the bent of his mind at certain moments and laying it to heart, but my inclination for abstract thought developed my consciousness in such a way that often when I began to consider even the simplest matter I would lose myself in a labyrinthine analysis of my own thoughts concerning the matter in question. That is to say, I no longer thought of the matter itself, but only of what I was thinking about it. If I had then asked myself, Of what am I thinking? The true answer would have been, I am thinking of what I am thinking. And if I had further asked myself, What, then, are the thoughts of which I am thinking? I should have had to reply, They are attempts to think of what I am thinking concerning my own thoughts, and so on. Reason, with me, had to yield to excess of reason. Every philosophical discovery which I made so flattered my conceit that I often imagined myself to be a great man discovering new truths for the benefit of humanity. Consequently, I looked down with proud dignity upon my fellow-mortals. Yet, strange to state, no sooner did I come in contact with those fellow-mortals than I became filled with a stupid shyness of them, and the higher I happened to be standing in my own opinion, the less did I feel capable of making others perceive my consciousness of my own dignity, since I could not rid myself of a sense of diffidence concerning even the simplest of my words and acts. CHAPTER Twenty, Woloda The further I advance in the recital of this period of my life, the more difficult and onerous does the task become. Too rarely do I find among the reminiscences of that time any moments full of the ardent feeling of sincerity which so often and so cheeringly illumined my childhood. Gladly would I pass in haste over my lonely boyhood, the sooner to arrive at the happy time when once again a tender, sincere, and noble friendship marked with a gleam of light at once the termination of that period and the beginning of a phase of my youth which was full of the charm of poetry. Therefore, I will not pursue my recollections from hour to hour, but only throw a cursory glance at the most prominent of them. 
from the time to which I have now carried my tale to the moment of my first contact with the exceptional personality that was fated to exercise such a decisive influence upon my character and ideas. Woloda was about to enter the university. Tutors came to give him lessons independently of myself, and I listened with envy and involuntary respect as he drew boldly on the blackboard with white chalk and talked about functions, signs, and so forth, all of which seemed to me terms pertaining to unattainable wisdom. At length, one Sunday before luncheon, all the tutors, and among them two professors, assembled in Grandmamma's room, and in the presence of Papa and some friends, put Woloda through a rehearsal of his university examination in which to grandmamma's delight he gave evidence of no ordinary amount of knowledge questions on different subjects were also put to me but on all of them i showed complete ignorance while the fact that the professors manifestly endeavoured to conceal that ignorance from grandmamma only confused me the more yet after all i was only fifteen and so had a year before me in which to prepare for the examinations Woloda now came downstairs for luncheon only, and spent whole days and evenings over his studies in his own room, to which he kept not from necessity, but because he preferred its seclusion. He was very ambitious, and meant to pass the examinations not by halves, but with flying colours. The first day arrived. Woloda was wearing a new blue frock-coat with brass buttons, a gold watch, and shiny boots. At the door stood Papa's phaeton which Nicola duly opened, and presently when Woloda and St. Jerome set out for the university, the girls, particularly Katenka, would be seen gazing with beaming faces from the window at Woloda's pleasing figure as it sat in the carriage. Papa said several times, "'God go with him!' and Grandmamma, who also had dragged herself to the window, continued to make the sign of the cross as long as the phaeton was visible, as well as to murmur something to herself. When Woloda returned, every one eagerly crowded round him. How many marks? Were they good ones? Yes. But his happy face was an answer in itself. He had received five marks, the maximum. The next day he sped on his way with the same good wishes and the same anxiety for his success, and was welcomed home with the same eagerness and joy. This lasted for nine days. On the tenth day there was to be the last and most difficult examination of all the one in divinity. We all stood at the window, and watched for him with greater impatience than ever. Two o'clock, and yet no Woloda. "'Here they come, papa! Here they come!' suddenly screamed Lubotshka, as she peered through the window. Sure enough, the phaeton was driving up with St. Jerome and Woloda, the latter no longer in his grey cap and blue frock-coat, but in the uniform of a student of the university with its embroidered blue collar, three-cornered hat, and gilded sword. "'Ah! if only she had been alive now!' exclaimed Grandmamma, on seeing Woloda in this dress, and swooned away. Woloda enters the anteroom with a beaming face, and embraces myself, Lubotshka, Mimi, and Katenka, the latter blushing to her ears. He hardly knows himself for joy. And how smart he looks in that uniform! How well the blue collar suits his budding, dark moustache! What a tall, elegant figure is his, and what a distinguished walk! On that memorable day we all lunched together in Grandmamma's room. Every face expressed delight, and with the dessert which followed the meal the servants, with grave but gratified faces, brought in bottles of champagne. Grandmamma, for the first time since Mamma's death, drank a full glass of the wine to Woloda's health, 
and wept for joy as she looked at him. Henceforth Woloda drove his own turnout, invited his own friends, smoked, and went to balls. On one occasion I even saw him sharing a couple of bottles of champagne with some guests in his room, and the whole company drinking a toast, with each glass, to some mysterious being, and then quarrelling as to who should have the bottom of the bottle. Nevertheless, he always lunched at home, and after the meal would stretch himself on a sofa and talk confidentially to Katenka. Yet from what I overheard, while pretending, of course, to pay no attention, I gathered that they were only talking of the heroes and heroines of novels which they had read, or else of jealousy and love, and so on. Never could I understand what they found so attractive in these conversations, nor why they smiled so happily and discussed things with such animation. Altogether I could see that, in addition to the friendships natural to persons who had been companions from childhood, there existed between Woloda and Katenka a relation which differentiated them from us, and united them mysteriously to one another. End of section 5 Recording by Bill Borst Section 6 of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy Translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section six, chapters twenty one through twenty four. Chapter twenty one, Katenka and Lubotshka. Katenka was now sixteen years old, quite a grown-up girl, and although at that age the angular figures, the bashfulness, and the gaucherie peculiar to girls passing from childhood to youth usually replace the comely freshness and graceful, half-developed bloom of childhood, she had in no way altered. Still, the blue eyes with their merry glance were hers, the well-shaped nose with firm nostrils, and almost forming a line with the forehead, the little mouth with its charming smile, the dimples in the rosy cheeks, and the small white hands. To her the epithet of girl, pure and simple, was preeminently applicable, for in her the only new features were a new, and young lady-like arrangement of her thick flaxen hair and a youthful bosom, the latter an addition which at once caused her great joy and made her very bashful. Although Lubotshka and she had grown up together and received the same education, they were totally unlike one another. Lubotshka was not tall, and the rickets from which she had suffered had shaped her feet in goose-fashion, and made her figure very bad. The only pretty feature in her face was her eyes which were indeed wonderful, being large and black, and instinct with such an extremely pleasing expression of mingled gravity and naivete that she was bound to attract attention. In everything she was simple and natural, so that whereas Katenka always looked as though she were trying to be like someone else, Lubotshka looked people straight in the face and sometimes fixed them so long with her splendid black eyes that she got blamed for doing what was thought to be improper. Katenka, on the contrary, always cast her eyelids down, blinked, and pretended that she was short-sighted, though I knew very well that her sight was excellent. Lubotshka hated being shown off before strangers, and when a visitor offered to kiss her she invariably grew cross, and said that she hated affection, whereas when strangers were present Katenka was always particularly endearing to Mimi, and loved to walk about the room arm in arm with another girl. Likewise, though Lubotshka was a terrible giggler, and sometimes ran about the room in convulsions of gesticulating laughter, Katenka always covered her mouth with her hands or her pocket-handkerchief when she wanted to laugh. 
Lubotshka again loved to have grown-up men to talk to, and said that some day she meant to marry a hussar. But Katenka always pretended that all men were horrid, and that she never meant to marry any one of them, while as soon as a male visitor addressed her she changed completely, as though she were nervous of something. Likewise, Lubotshka was continually at loggerheads with Mimi, because the latter wanted her to have her stays so tight that she could not breathe or eat or drink in comfort, while Katenka, on the contrary, would often insert her finger into her waistband to show how loose it was, and always ate very little. Lubotshka liked to draw heads, Katenka only flowers and butterflies. The former could play Field's concertos and Beethoven's sonatas excellently, whereas the latter, indulged in variations and waltzes, retarded the time, and used the pedals continuously, not to mention the fact that before she began she invariably struck three chords in arpeggio. Nevertheless, in those days I thought Katenka much the grander person of the two, and liked her the best. CHAPTER Twenty Two, PAPA Papa had been in a particularly good humour ever since Woloda had passed into the university and came much oftener to dine with Grandmamma. However, I knew from Nicola that he had won a great deal lately. Occasionally he would come and sit with us in the evening before going to the club. He used to sit down to the piano and bid us group ourselves around him, after which he would beat time with his thin boots—he detested heels, and never wore them—and make us sing gypsy songs. At such times you should have seen the quaint enthusiasm of his beloved Lobotchka, who adored him. Sometimes, again, he would come to the schoolroom and listen with a grave face as I said my lessons. Yet by the few words which he would let drop on correcting me, I could see that he knew even less about the subject than I did. Not infrequently, too, he would wink at us and make secret signs when Grandmamma was beginning to scold us and find fault with us all round. "'So much for us children,' he would say. On the whole, however, the impossible pinnacle upon which my childish imagination had placed him had undergone a certain abasement. I still kissed his large white hand with a certain feeling of love and respect, but I also allowed myself to think about him and to criticize his behavior, until involuntarily thoughts occurred to me which alarmed me by their presence. Never shall I forget one incident in particular which awakened thoughts of this kind, and caused me intense astonishment. Late one evening, he entered the drawing-room in his black dress-coat and white waistcoat, to take Woloda, who was still dressing in his bedroom, to a ball. Grandmamma was also in her bedroom, but had given orders that, before setting out, Woloda was to come and say good-bye to her. It was her invariable custom to inspect him before he went to a ball, and to bless him and direct him as to his behaviour. The room where we were was lighted by a solitary lamp. Mimi and Katenka were walking up and down and Lubotshka was playing Field's second concerto, Mamma's favourite piece, at the piano. Never was there such a family likeness as between Mamma and my sister. Not so much in the face or the stature as in the hands, the walk, the voice, the favourite expressions, and above all, the way of playing the piano and the whole demeanour at the instrument. Lubotshka always arranged her dress when sitting down just as Mamma had done as well as turned the leaves like her, tapped her fingers angrily, and said, Dear me, whenever a difficult passage did not go smoothly, and in particular played with the delicacy and exquisite purity of touch, which in those days caused the execution of Field's music to be known characteristically as Je Père, and to lie beyond comparison with the humbug of our modern virtuosi. 
Papa entered the room with short, soft steps, and approached Lubotshka. On seeing him she stopped playing. "'No, go on, Luba, go on,' he said, as he forced her to sit down again. She went on playing, while Papa, his head on his hand, sat near her for a while. Then suddenly he gave his shoulders a shrug, and rising began to pace the room. Every time that he approached the piano he halted for a moment, and looked fixedly at Lubotshka. By his walk and his every movement I could see that he was greatly agitated. Once, when he stopped behind Lubotshka, he kissed her black hair, and then, wheeling quickly round, resumed his pacing. The piece finished, Lubotshka went up to him and said, "'Was it well played?' Whereupon, without answering, he took her head in his two hands, and kissed her forehead and eyes with such tenderness as I had never before seen him display. "'Why, you are crying!' cried Lubotshka, suddenly, as she ceased to toy with his watch-chain, and stared at him with her great black eyes. "'Pardon me, darling papa. I had quite forgotten that it was dear mamma's piece which I was playing.' "'No, no, my love. Play it often,' he said, in a voice trembling with emotion. "'Ah! if only you knew how much good it does me to share your tears!' He kissed her again, and then, mastering his feelings and shrugging his shoulders, went to the door leading to the corridor which ran past Woloda's room. "'Waldemar! Shall you be ready soon?' he cried, halting in the middle of the passage. Just then Masha came along. "'Why, you look prettier every day,' he said to her. She blushed and passed on. "'Waldemar! Shall you be ready soon?' he cried again, with a cough and a shake of his shoulders, just as Masha slipped away and he first caught sight of me. "'I love papa. But the intellect is independent of the heart.' and often gives birth to thoughts which offend and are harsh and incomprehensible to the feelings. And it was thoughts of this kind that, for all I strove to put them away, arose at that moment in my mind. CHAPTER Twenty Three, GRANDMAMMA Grandmamma was growing weaker every day. Her bell, Gasha's grumbling voice, and the slamming of doors in her room were sounds of constant occurrence and she no longer received us sitting in the Voltairean armchair in her boudoir, but lying on the bed in her bedroom, supported on lace-trimmed cushions. One day when she greeted us I noticed a yellowish-white swelling on her hand, and smelt the same oppressive odour which I had smelt five years ago in Mamma's room. The doctor came three times a day, and there had been more than one consultation. Yet the character of her haughty, ceremonious bearing towards all who lived with her, and particularly towards papa, never changed in the least. She went on emphasizing certain words, raising her eyebrows, and saying, My dear, just as she had always done. Then for a few days we did not see her at all. And one morning St. Jerome proposed to me that Woloda and I should take Katenka and Lubotshka for a drive during the hours generally allotted to study. Although I observed that the street was lined with straw under the windows of Grandmamma's room, and that some men in blue stockings, undertaker's men, were standing at our gate. The reason never dawned upon me why we were being sent out at that unusual hour. Throughout the drive Lubotshka and I were in that particularly merry mood when the least trifle, the least word or movement, sets one off laughing. A peddler went trotting across the road with a tray, and we laughed. Some ragged cabmen, brandishing their reins and driving at full speed, overtook our sledge, and we laughed again. Next Philip's whip got caught in the side of the vehicle, and the way in which he said bother the thing as he drove to disentangle it almost killed us with mirth. Mimi looked displeased, and said that only silly people laughed for no reason at all. 
But Lubotshka, her face purple with suppressed merriment, needed but to give me a sly glance, and we again burst out into such Homeric laughter, when our eyes met, that the tears rushed into them and we could not stop our paroxysms, although they nearly choked us. Hardly again had we desisted a little when I looked at Lubotshka once more, and gave vent to one of the slang words which we then affected among ourselves, words which always called forth hilarity, and in a moment we were laughing again. Just as we reached home, I was opening my mouth to make a splendid grimace at Lubotshka, when my eye fell upon a black coffin-cover which was leaning against the gate, and my mouth remained fixed in its gaping position. "'Your grandmamma is dead,' said St. Jerome as he met us. His face was very pale. Throughout the whole time that Grandmamma's body was in the house I was oppressed with the fear of death, for the corpse served as a forcible and disagreeable reminder that I too must die some day, a feeling which people often mistake for grief. I had no sincere regret for Grandmamma, nor, I think, had any one else, since, although the house was full of sympathizing callers, nobody seemed to mourn for her from their hearts except one mourner whose genuine grief made a great impression upon me seeing that the mourner in question was Gasha. She shut herself up in the garret, tore her hair and refused all consolation, saying that now that her mistress was dead she only wished to die herself. I again assert that, in matters of feeling, it is the unexpected effects that constitute the most reliable signs of sincerity. Though Grandmamma was no longer with us, reminiscences and gossip about her long went on in the house. Such gossip referred mostly to her will, which she had made shortly before her death, and of which as yet no one knew the contents except her bosom friend, Prince Ivan Ivanovitch. I could hear the servants talking excitedly together, and making innumerable conjectures as to the amount left and the probable beneficiaries. Nor can I deny that the idea that we ourselves were probably the latter greatly pleased me. Six weeks later, Nicola, who acted as regular news-agent to the house, informed me that Grandmamma had left the whole of her fortune to Lubotshka, with, as her trustee until her majority, not Papa, but Prince Ivan Ivanovitch. CHAPTER Twenty Four, MYSELF Only a few months remained before I was to matriculate for the university, yet I was making such good progress that I felt no apprehensions, and even took a pleasure in my studies. I kept in good heart and learnt my lessons fluently and intelligently. The faculty I had selected was the mathematical one, probably, to tell the truth, because the terms tangent, differentials, integrals, and so forth, pleased my fancy. Though stout and broad-shouldered, I was shorter than Woloda, while my ugliness of face still remained and tormented me as much as ever. By way of compensation I tried to appear original, yet one thing comforted me, namely, that Papa had said, that I had an intelligent face. I quite believed him. St. Jerome was not only satisfied with me, but actually had taken to praising me. Consequently I had now ceased to hate him. In fact, when one day he said that, with my capacities and my intellect, it would be shameful for me not to accomplish this, that, or the other thing, I believe I almost liked him. I had long ago given up keeping observation on the maid-servant's room, for I was now ashamed to hide behind doors. Likewise, I confess that the knowledge of Masha's love for Basil had greatly cooled my ardour for her, and that my passion underwent a final cure by their marriage, a consummation to which I myself contributed by, at Basil's request, 
asking papa's consent to the union when the newly married couple brought trays of cakes and sweetmeats to papa as a thank-offering and masha in a cap with blue ribbons kissed each of us on the shoulder in betoken of her gratitude i merely noticed the scent of the rose pomade on her hair but felt no other sensation in general i was beginning to get the better of my youthful defects with the exception of the principal one the one of which i shall often again have to speak in relating my life's history namely the tendency to abstract thought end of section six recording by bill borst section seven of boyhood by leo tolstoy translated by c j hogarth this librivox recording is in the public domain section seven chapters twenty five through twenty seven chapter twenty five woloda's friends although when in the society of woloda's friends i had to play a part that hurt my pride i liked sitting in his room when he had visitors and silently watching all they did the two who came most frequently to see him were a military adjutant called dubkoff and a student named prince nekhludoff dubkoff was a little dark-haired highly strung man who though short of stature and no longer in his first youth had a pleasing and invariably cheerful air his was one of those limited natures which are agreeable through their very limitations natures which cannot regard matters from every point of view but which are nevertheless attracted by everything usually the reasoning of such persons is false and one-sided yet always genuine and taking wherefore their narrow egotism seems both amiable and excusable there were two other reasons why dubkoff had charms for woloda and myself namely the fact that he was of military appearance and secondly and principally the fact that he was of a certain age an age with which young people are apt to associate that quality of gentlemanliness which is so highly esteemed at their time of life. However, he was in very truth un homme comme il faut. The only thing which I did not like about it all was that, in his presence, Woloda always seemed ashamed of my innocent behaviour, and still more so of my youthfulness. As for Prince Nekhludoff, he was in no way handsome, since neither his small grey eyes, his low projecting forehead, nor his disproportionately long hands and feet could be called good features. The only good points about him were his unusually tall stature, his delicate colouring, and his splendid teeth. Nevertheless, his face was of such an original, energetic character, owing to his narrow sparkling eyes and ever-changing expression, now stern, now childlike, now smiling indeterminately, that it was impossible to help noticing it. As a rule he was very shy, and would blush to the ears at the smallest trifle but it was a shyness altogether different from mine, seeing that the more he blushed the more determined-looking he grew, as though he were vexed at his own weakness. Although he was on very good terms with Woloda and Dubkoff, it was clearly chance which had united them thus, since their tastes were entirely dissimilar. Woloda and Dubkoff seemed to be afraid of anything like serious consideration or emotion, whereas Nekhludoff was beyond all things an enthusiast, and would often, despite their sarcastic remarks, plunge into dissertations on philosophical matters or matters of feeling. Again the two former liked talking about the fair objects of their adoration. These were always numerous and always shared by the friends in common, whereas Nekhludoff invariably grew annoyed when taxed with his love for a certain red-haired lady. 
Again Woloda and Dubkoff often permitted themselves to criticize their relatives, and to find amusement in so doing, but Nekhludoff flew into a tremendous rage when on one occasion they referred to some weak points in the character of an aunt of his, whom he adored. Finally, after supper Woloda and Dubkoff would usually go off to some place whither Nekhludoff would not accompany them, wherefore they called him a dainty girl. The very first time that I ever saw Prince Nekhludoff I was struck with his exterior and conversation, yet though I could discern a great similarity between his disposition and my own, or perhaps it was because I could so discern it, the impression which he produced upon me at first was anything but agreeable. I liked neither his quick glance, his hard voice, his proud bearing, nor, least of all, the utter indifference with which he treated me. Often, when conversing, I burned to contradict him, to punish his pride by confuting him, to show him that I was clever in spite of his disdainful neglect of my presence. But I was invariably prevented from doing so by my shyness. CHAPTER Twenty Six, DISCUSSIONS Woloda was lying reading a French novel on the sofa when I paid my usual visit to his room after my evening lessons. He looked up at me for a moment from his book, and then went on reading. This perfectly simple and natural movement, however, offended me. I conceived that the glance implied a question why I had come, and a wish to hide his thoughts from me. I may say that, at that period, a tendency to attach a meaning to the most insignificant of acts formed a prominent feature in my character. So I went to the table and also took up a book to read. Yet, even before I had actually begun reading, the idea struck me how ridiculous it was that, although we had never seen one another all day, we should have not a word to exchange. "'Are you going to stay in to-night, Woloda?' "'I don't know.' "'Why?' "'Oh, because—' Seeing that the conversation did not promise to be a success, I took up my book again and began to read. Yet it was a strange thing that, though we sometimes passed whole hours together without speaking when we were alone, the mere presence of a third, sometimes of a taciturn and a wholly uninteresting person, sufficed to plunge us into the most varied and engrossing of discussions. The truth was that we knew one another too well, and to know a person either too well or too little acts as a bar to intimacy. "'Is Woloda at home?' came in Dubkoff's voice from the anteroom. "'Yes,' shouted Woloda, springing up and throwing aside his book. Dubkoff and Nekhludoff entered. "'Are you coming to the theatre, Woloda?' "'No, I have no time,' he replied with a blush. "'Oh, never mind that. Come along. But I haven't got a ticket. Tickets, as many as you like, at the entrance.' "'Very well, then. I'll be back in a minute,' said Woloda, evasively, as he left the room. I knew very well that he wanted to go, but that he had declined because he had no money, and had now gone to borrow five roubles of one of the servants, to be repaid when he got his next allowance. "'How do you do, diplomat?' said Dubkoff to me, as he shook me by the hand. Woloda's friends had called me by that nickname since the day when Grandmamma had said at luncheon that Woloda must go into the army, but that she would like to see me in the diplomatic service, dressed in a black frock-coat, and with my hair arranged à la coque, the two essential requirements, in her opinion, of a diplomat. "'Where has Woloda gone to?' asked Nekhludoff. I don't know, I replied, blushing to think that nevertheless they had probably guessed his errand. I suppose he has no money? Yes, I can see I am right, O oh diplomatist, he added, taking my smile as an answer in the affirmative. Well, I have none either. Have you any, Dubkoff? 
"'I'll see,' replied Dubkoff, feeling for his pocket and rummaging gingerly about with his squat little fingers among his small change. "'Yes, here are five kopecks. Twenty. But that's all,' he concluded, with a comic gesture of his hand. At this point Woloda re-entered. "'Are we going?' "'No.' "'What an odd fellow you are,' said Nekhludoff. "'Why don't you say that you have no money? Here, take my ticket.' "'But what are you going to do?' "'He can go to his cousin's box,' said Dubkoff. "'No, I'm not going at all,' replied Nekhludoff. "'Why? Because I hate sitting in a box. And for what reason? I don't know. Somehow I feel uncomfortable there.' "'Always the same. I can't understand a fellow feeling uncomfortable when he is sitting with people who are fond of him. It is unnatural, mon cher.' But what else is there to be done, si je suis tant timide? You never blushed in your life, but I do at the least trifle, and he blushed at that moment. Do you know what that nervousness of yours proceeds from? said Dubkoff, in a protecting sort of tone. D'un excess d'amour propre, mon cher. What do you mean by excess d'amour propre? asked Nekhludoff, highly offended. On the contrary, I am shy just because I have too little amour propre. I always feel as though I were being tiresome and disagreeable, and therefore—'Well, get ready, Woloda, interrupted Dubkoff, tapping my brother on the shoulder and handing him his cloak. Ignaz, get your master ready. Therefore, continued Nekhludoff, it often happens with me that—but Dubkoff was not listening. Tra-la-la-la, and he hummed a popular air. Oh, but I'm not going to let you off, went on Nekhludoff. I mean to prove to you that my shyness is not the result of conceit. You can prove it as we go along. But I have told you I am not going. Well, then, stay here and prove it to the diplomat, and he can tell us all about it when we return." "'Yes, that's what I will do,' said Nekhludoff, with boyish obstinacy. So hurry up with your return." "'Well, do you think I am egotistic?' he continued, seating himself beside me. True, I had a definite opinion on the subject, but I felt so taken aback by this unexpected question that at first I could make no reply. "'Yes, I do think so,' I said, at length, in a faltering voice, and colouring at the thought that at last the moment had come when I could show him that I was clever. I think that everybody is egotistic, and that everything we do is done out of egotism.' "'But what do you call egotism?' asked Nekhludoff, smiling, as I thought a little contemptuously. "'Egotism is a conviction that we are better and cleverer than anyone else,' I replied. "'But how can we all be filled with this conviction?' he inquired. "Well." I don't know if I am right or not. Certainly no one but myself seems to hold the opinion. But I believe that I am wiser than anyone else in the world, and that all of you know it." "'At least I can say for myself,' observed Nekhludoff, "'that I have met a few people whom I believe to excel me in wisdom.' "'It is impossible,' I replied with conviction. "'Do you really think so?' he said, looking at me gravely. "'Yes, really,' I answered. And an idea crossed my mind, which I proceeded to expound further. Let me prove it to you. Why do we love ourselves better than anyone else? Because we think ourselves better than anyone else, more worthy of our own love. If we thought others better than ourselves, we should love them better than ourselves, but that is never the case. And even if it were so, I should still be right," I added with an involuntary smile of complacency. For a few minutes Nekhludoff was silent. I never thought you were so clever," he said, with a smile so good-humoured and charming that I at once felt happy. Praise exercises an all-potent influence, not only upon the feelings but also upon the intellect, so that under the influence of that agreeable sensation I straightway felt much cleverer than before. 
and thoughts began to rush with extraordinary rapidity through my head. From egotism we passed insensibly to the theme of love, which seemed inexhaustible, although our reasonings might have sounded nonsensical to a listener, so vague and one-sided were they, for ourselves they had a profound significance. Our minds were so perfectly in harmony that not a chord was struck in the one without awakening an echo in the other, and in this harmonious striking of different chords we found the greatest delight. Indeed, we felt as though time and language were insufficient to express the thoughts which seethed within us. CHAPTER Twenty Seven: THE BEGINNING OF OUR FRIENDSHIP From that time forth a strange but exceedingly pleasant relation subsisted between Dmitri Nekhludoff and myself. Before other people he paid me scanty attention, but as soon as ever we were alone we would sit down together in some comfortable corner, and forgetful both of time and of everything around us, fall to reasoning. We talked of a future life, of art, service, marriage, and education. Nor did the idea ever occur to us that very possibly all we said was shocking nonsense. The reason why it never occurred to us was that the nonsense which we talked was good, sensible nonsense, and that so long as one is young one can appreciate good nonsense, and believe in it. In youth the powers of the mind are directed wholly to the future, and that future assumes such various vivid and alluring forms under the influence of hope, hope based not upon the experience of the past, but upon an assumed possibility of happiness to come, that such dreams of expected felicity constitute in themselves the true happiness of that period of our life. How I loved those moments in our metaphysical discussions, discussions which formed the major portion of our intercourse, when thoughts came thronging faster and faster, and succeeding one another at lightning speed, and growing more and more abstract, at length attained such a pitch of elevation that one felt powerless to express them, and said something quite different from what one had intended at first to say. How I liked those moments, too, when, carried higher and higher into the realms of thought, we suddenly felt that we could grasp its substance no longer, and go no further. At carnival time Nekhludoff was so much taken up with one festivity and another that, though he came to see us several times a day, he never addressed a single word to me. This offended me so much that once again I found myself thinking him a haughty, disagreeable fellow, and only awaited an opportunity to show him that I no longer valued his company or felt any particular affection for him. Accordingly, the first time that he spoke to me after the carnival, I said that I had lessons to do, and went upstairs, but a quarter of an hour later someone opened the schoolroom door, and Nekhludoff entered. "'Am I disturbing you?' he asked. "'No,' I replied, although I had at first intended to say that I had a great deal to do. "'Then why did you run away just now? It is a long while since we had a talk together, and I have grown so accustomed to these discussions that I feel as though something were wanting.' My anger had quite gone now, and Dmitri stood before me the same good and lovable being as before. "'You know, perhaps, why I ran away?' I said. "'Perhaps I do,' he answered, taking a seat near me. "'However, though it is possible I know why, I cannot say it straight out, whereas you can. Then I will do so. I ran away because I was angry with you—well, not angry, but grieved. I always have an idea that you despise me for being so young.' "'Well, do you know why I always feel so attracted towards you?' he replied, meeting my confession with a look of kind understanding. "'And why I like you better than any of my other acquaintances, or than any of the people among whom I mostly have to live? It is because I found out at once that you have the rare and astonishing gift of sincerity.' 
Yes, I always confess the things of which I am most ashamed, but only to people in whom I trust, I said. Ah! But to trust a man you must be his friend completely, and we are not friends yet, Nicholas. Remember how when we were speaking of friendship we agreed that, to be real friends, we ought to trust one another implicitly? I trust you in so far as that I feel convinced you would never repeat a word of what I might tell you, I said. Yet perhaps the most interesting and important thoughts of all are just those which we never tell one another, while the mean thoughts, the thoughts which, if we only knew that we had to confess them to one another, would probably never have the hardihood to enter our minds. Well, do you know what I am thinking of, Nicholas?" He broke off, rising and taking my hand with a smile. I propose, and I feel sure that it would benefit us mutually, that we should pledge our word to one another to tell each other everything. We should then really know each other, and never have anything on our consciences. And to guard against outsiders, let us also agree never to speak of one another to a third person. Suppose we do that?" I agree, I replied, and we did it. What the result was shall be told hereafter. Kerr has said that every attachment has two sides. One loves, and the other allows himself to be loved. One kisses, and the other surrenders his cheek. That is perfectly true. In the case of our own attachment it was I who kissed, and Dmitri who surrendered his cheek, though he in his turn was ready to pay me a similar salute. We loved equally because we knew and appreciated each other thoroughly, but this did not prevent him from exercising an influence over me, nor myself from rendering him adoration. It will be readily understood that Nekhludoff's influence caused me to adopt his bent of mind, the essence of which lay in an enthusiastic reverence for ideal virtue and a firm belief in man's vocation to perpetual perfection. To raise mankind, to abolish vice and misery, seemed at that time a task offering no difficulties. To educate one's self to every virtue, and so to achieve happiness, seemed a simple and easy matter. Only God Himself knows whether those blessed dreams of youth were ridiculous, or whose the fault was that they never became realized. End of section 7. Recording by Bill Borst. End of Boyhood by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C. J. Hogarth.